the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Unleash the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses, or stars of David. They add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it, we will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. Welcome indeed. That is exactly who we are. That is exactly what we do. It is eight minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Thursday, the 11th morning of the first month in the year of our Lord, 2024. Uh, Big show today. Lots of great information uh, for you and lots of great guests that we're going to be talking to as well. Very much looking forward uh, to these uh, coming up. Excuse me. Coming up in about a half an hour at 935. Uh, we're going to be talking to Mark Williams. He is the Medina County GOP Executive Vice Chairman. Why am I talking to Medina County's GOP Executive Vice Chairman? Well, it could be because they went ahead and just delivered a full five-fingered slap across the face of Governor Mike DeWine, whose veto yesterday, or rather, whose veto late last month of the SAFE Act putting scores of Ohio children in serious danger and jeopardy of permanent and irreversible bodily mutilation and chemical castration. That veto was overridden by an extraordinary margin yesterday by the Ohio State House. And yes, I can indeed dig that. I don't know why that's so low. There you go, that's a little better. Uh, So after Mike DeWine vetoed the SAFE Act and the Save Women's Sports Act, then we have the Medina County, or excuse me, the uh, Ohio State House uh, uh, State Republicans yesterday, 65. The original bill got 62 votes, which is a great, obviously, veto-proof majority. You need more than 60. But the original bill got 62 votes. Then DeWine vetoed it. And the response was some of those who voted against it last time or didn't vote at all voted for the override yesterday. And if that wasn't a good, a hard enough slap from the, uh, from the uh, Ohio State House Republicans, then the Medina County GOP officially censured 
officially censured um, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. Absolutely spectacular, phenomenal, uh, just a glorious, glorious thing here. So we're going to talk to the executive uh, director about that. Very much looking forward to it. Uh, I'm going to read, well, wait till I get uh, 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 Mark Williams on coming up at 935 to read some of the uh, specifics to you from the... uh, uh, from the censure. But but it's just, I mean, obviously it's symbolic. It's not going to do any damage to Mike DeWine, but I love it. And I wish more GOPs, county GOPs and leaders, will do the same thing. Tell them not only we are coming over the top of you for your ridiculous veto, putting kids in danger, number one, uh, we are all also going to officially censure you and tell you that what you have done is unacceptable. It is It is in violation, essentially, of your oath, which is, I believe, what it is. His oath to protect the Ohio Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, and the people is abrogated when you do not protect the people. So huge, huge uh, story there. So we're going to talk to Mark Williams. At 1010, Dr. Everett Piper. And I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Dr. Piper was almost a ga- uh, game-time scratch, uh, but uh, he told me this morning he's good and ready to go, so we're looking forward to that. He's got two great articles this week in the Washington Examiner, uh, excuse me, Washington Times. And we're going to talk about those things. And then at 1035, we're going to talk about something that might seem a little bit boring, but you better start paying attention to the the money. Our Republican, conservative uh, Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, just rolled over for Chuck Schumer and for uh, Hakeem Jeffries and for Joe Biden on a spending deal, all to avoid the government shutdown on the 19th. Eleven days early, $1.66 trillion Democrat spending dream. And it's a big problem. And we're going to talk to the Director of Budget and Entitlements Policy at the Cato Institute at 1035 this morning about that. So much of the emergency spending, and by the way, this part isn't new. I don't want to get too much into the details now because that's coming up at uh, 1035. But did you know that of our $33 trillion national debt, more than a third of it, around 40% of it, $12 mil, a trillion dollars of it, since 1992 has been in emergency spending? When they tell you we just cannot go forward unless we grant this number of billions of dollars and that number of billions of dollars for this emergency or that. Forty-plus percent of the total national debt. We have been just gaslit into thinking this is absolutely necessary at this moment in time. It's over a third of the amount. And all of this affects you. It affects your tax dollars. It affects your children. It affects their children. And with the $33 trillion debt, you can probably say that about six more generations down. So we're going to talk about it with uh, Romina uh, Boccia. I hope I'm saying the name correctly. But that'll be coming up at 1035. So we've got great guests. We've got great comment, uh, co- uh, conversation to have with you as well. 216 901 I already started the show with a Can You Dig It? Let's start it or continue it now with a Pledge of Allegiance. Let's uh, stand up and face the flag. Do not fake it, by the way. Don't fake your allegiance to this great country if you are a leftist who loves this radical spending. If you're crying about the fact that doctors won't be able to as easily butcher children that have been, have been groomed and brainwashed and indoctrinated into thinking they're something, they are something that they are not. If any of those things bother you, then the flag isn't for you, nor is the liberty that it represents nor the nation that it stands for. So you don't need to stand. Take a knee over there next to the other Marxists. For those of us who believe, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America 
and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, then, let's dive into what happened yesterday. This was something we spent a lot of great, a lot of time on uh, on the air yesterday morning. We talked about it on Tuesday morning. We talked about it on Monday morning. Uh, that we needed to override this. Jason Stevens, the much maligned Speaker of the House of uh, Representatives in Columbus, and he deserves that uh, maligning, uh, called everybody back early. Called everybody back early to get them to vote to override Mike DeWine's veto. He deserves credit for that. I give credit where it's due. I do not. Uh, I do not abuse people and uh, and criticize and beat up people for no reason. Jason Stevens deserves to be beaten up for giving Democrats power. Uh, when he took the gavel under the uh, uh, horrific conditions he did a year ago, about a year ago last week, in fact. Uh, but I will give credit where it's due. Stevens came through here and brought everybody back. And whether he was um, responsible for or took part in whipping up more override votes than we had in the original uh, SAFE Act vote in the first place, I don't know. But he gets credit for bringing everybody back. And then yesterday, they did bring everybody back. As noted, 65 votes to override Mike DeWine. Obviously, now we are waiting for the Senate. The Senate has to act. Um, unfortunately, uh, Senate President Matt Huffman did not bring everybody back early. Will he bring them back before the 24th? Nobody knows. But they're supposed to arrive at the very latest uh, by the 24th. And it is my fervent hope that the first order of business for Senate President Matt Huffman is to call an override vote in the Senate side as well. They have, excuse me, more than enough votes for the original SAFE Act if everybody just follows suit, or maybe you'll flip a couple the way they did on the House side and get this done. So time is of the essence there. We're hoping it takes less time rather than more time. But for now, we did celebrate yesterday uh, the passage of the SAFE Act override of Mike DeWine's veto. And... Um, uh, State Representative Gary Click, who is the lead sponsor of that uh, extraordinarily important bill, the Safe Act, something that he coordinated and collaborated actually with uh, an Arkansas state legislator that passed a Safe Act there uh, a couple of years back. But uh, Gary Click yesterday took a well-deserved victory lap. The opportunity to stand up for women and children in the state of Ohio. This was not something I ever anticipated when I came here when I won my election, when I began serving. I also want to thank the parents. I want to thank the doctors, the physicians. I want to thank the victims of gender ideology that all came to me and said, would you help us? They trusted me to put my heart into it. They trusted me not to just work in sound bites, but to do the diligent research. And that's what I've devoted myself to ever since I've been here. I read all the dry journals. I spoke to doctors. I spoke to physicians. I'm getting, by the way, emails and congratulations from doctors. Many doctors can't come out and speak on this because they feel like their jobs are in jeopardy if they do because there's just a push to say there's only one way you can do this. And it's doctors and physicians and family members that have called on us to stand up for them and to represent what's right, what's good, and what's true, and what is in the best interest of children in Ohio. We have to get away from allowing our medical institutions to be captured by ideology. 
And that's what our people have said. The polling has supported us all throughout Ohio. It's Republicans and Democrats all believe in this. Democrats believe in this bill by a margin of 46 to 38, according to a Baldwin-Wallace poll. This should not have been a bipartisan, this should not have been a partisan event. In fact, the truth is, some of my Democrat colleagues actually told me they support the bill, but they have to vote with their colleagues and with their caucus. And shame on them. They should have voted with their conscience. I believe every word of that. I believe especially the part about doctors. You know full well that doctors who are caregivers by the nature of their, you know, their, their, uh, their mission, their, their, their profession, they're caregivers. And they do believe, even if they have, uh, somebody has decided in the AMA to change the Hippocratic Oath, which was never a quote-unquote binding anyway, but it was just a, an oath that every doctor took, um, either symbolically, personally, or what have you, to first do no harm. My job as a physician, as a medical professional, is to heal, not to harm. Cutting off healthy organs is harm. Permanent sterilization of a young person by way of puberty blockers is harm. And they know it. But the condition of the culture right now, this this bizarre, strange, we have to be affirming of every weird little delusion everybody has. We have to affirm a person's belief that they're really not a boy nor a girl. They're just them, just a person. They don't have a sex. They're non-binary or they're flipping from day to day. And I give you these things as examples of the absurdity of all of it. The doctors know this. It's They try to say, well, you know, Gender dysphoria really is a real thing because, you know, there there are males, a very tiny percentage of them, but who actually in their brains think they're females. If you want to argue that point, I will listen to it, and I will even acknowledge gender dysphoria as a real condition. There are a lot of psychological disorders. Some people think they're two people, split personality disorder. Okay? There are a lot of psychological, I'll give that to you, but don't act as if this is a normal thing because then you go to what I just said. No, I'm, I'm in my. I really don't think I'm a girl. I really don't think I'm a boy. I think I'm neither. I think I'm an animal. I, I no, I identify honestly, seriously, as a boy on Mondays, as a girl on Tuesdays, as an eagle on Wednesdays. I'm not making this crap up. I mean, I am as I run here, but these are real things that we are seeing all across the spectrum. Do you think medical professionals believe in all of that crap? They don't. But they can't say that because of the DEI agenda that has been pushed through the schools, pushed through medicine, pushed through corporate America. You have to be inclusive. And if somebody tells you that's what they identify as, you have to affirm it. Call them by what they want to be called. Pronoun them by what how they want to be pronounced. And yes, if you're in the medical profession, if they tell you, cut my breasts off then you do it there are doctors who don't believe in this stuff now there are some who don't believe in it but support it because there's a profit in motive involved they make lots and lots of money by creating life time consistent patients who have to keep coming back for them, just like they have to keep coming back to the pharmaceutical companies for the next prescription of this hormone or that hormone, this drug, that drug. It is a racket. So the profiteers don't believe in it, but they just support it because they get rich off of it. And then there are real doctors, real caregivers, who don't believe in it whatsoever, but they can't say so out loud because it'll cost them. 
their reputations. You will be you will be viewed as transphobic and not affirming. And you will be denying children care and leading them to suicide. They can't say what they really believe. But I guarantee you they say it in private. And that's exactly what Gary Click was talking about here. So we're here today to say we've done the right thing for Ohio. I'm so grateful for my colleagues who have stood with me in this. And today's vote was the highest vote. This is the third time we've actually voted on this bill. And today's vote was the highest vote, 65 votes. Before, it was 64 was the highest, and now it's 65 to gain the vote. And let, let me just talk about, well, you know what I'm going to do? There's a lot of things I could say, but I'm going to ask a couple of my colleagues to speak, and, and we also have a couple of friends that are up here with us as well. I'm going to give them you know, a minute or two to say a few things, and uh, then we'll take some questions. But Jenna Powell has been amazing. And uh, I feel like I, I'm kind of just... Uh, I told her today, I said, sort of like... Okay, well, this is pretty much the victory lap. Like I said, I wanted to give you just a little taste because they deserve it. Yesterday, they celebrated saving lives. And I want to say this before we take our first time out because this is extremely important. To the left-wing DEI and pro-trans, I don't even like to call them part of the LGBTQ community anymore. Because it, there is no community. Do you understand what I mean by that? There is no LGBTQ community where they're all the same. That's why the L's and the G's and the B's want to disassociate themselves from the T's and then the pluses and the Q's and the non-binaries and all the other things that are there. Because they're like, look, hey, we're, we're, we're doing our thing here. We have uh, achieved a certain level of uh, of comfort where with our sexual orientation, you know, we're not in the closet anymore and blah, blah, blah. But now you nuts come around here and associate yourselves with us and put put yourselves in, in, in the same quote-unquote community. And you want to drag children into alternative lifestyles from the time they're toddlers into their pre-K years, into their primary school years, and then all the way up. And we don't like it. That's why organizations like Gays Against Groomers are so extraordinarily important. So you've got you've got this this trans community, not the LGBTQ community, but the trans specific community here that is all over the place saying that this is going to kill kids in Ohio because kids they 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 when they don't feel affirmed, you know, they want to take their own lives. No. When they get their minds poisoned by horrific influencers with political agendas into thinking there's something they're not, confusing them that popularity is the most important thing in getting social credit and getting clout by being something different than a plain old straight white or or uh, or, or black or, or Hispanic or what have you, boy or girl. No, those aren't good enough. When they get their minds poisoned by thinking that's what they have to do, to 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 be welcomed and to be accepted and so forth that is abuse that is child abuse and i want it to be known that what happened yesterday is that lives were saved no matter what Allison Russo says no matter what David Dimwit at uh, the Ohio Capital Journal says no matter what any of them say as they sat there sullen and glum and angry yesterday as the override happened, no matter what they tell you about the impact this is going to have on children, know that they are lying from the very moment their lips start to tremble. They are lying to you. The people who are in the most danger are the people who are not 
protected by adults from their own youthful indiscretions and their confusion and their path toward full-on bodily mutilation. And then when they're in their 20s and they realize that they're not what they made themselves because of their confusion and all of the adults who failed them in their lives, that's when they take their lives 19 times more than everyone else in their 20s. Lives were saved yesterday in the Ohio State House. Mike DeWine should be ashamed for vetoing the SAFE Act. We're going to talk about whether or not he's ashamed of his censure coming. The answer. Enlightening the sleeping masses and stoking the fire of the American dream. Always write radio with Bob France on The Answer. I wonder if uh, Mike DeWine was enlightened yesterday when 65 Ohio State House representatives overrode his veto. It already passed with 62, which was a veto-proof majority. But then some that either didn't vote the first time or fli- or voted against it flipped to vote for the SAFE Act in the override yesterday. I wonder if that woke the sleeping governor of the state of Ohio up to the idiocy and the ignorance of his, uh, of his decisions. 65 yesterday. Mike DeWine, I-, I-, I hate overusing the word rhino, but he's not a Republican. Yes, he has the name, hence Rhino, Republican name, but he, he's not a Republican. I have seen and heard enough of his over-authoritarian uh, heavy-handedness. I saw it for two and a half years during COVID and what he did to the state and what he did now in, in uh, vetoing that SAFE Act and putting children at risk is simply unconscionable. I'm done with that, man. I got done with little Napoleon during COVID, quite frankly. I started to say some nice things about him in the run-up to the November election because he did cut a commercial with his wife against issue one and the abortion-on-demand nonsense that led to and will lead to more of these trans fights. But, um, But he is showing his true colors once again. I'm done. And I'm really done with people who say that, oh, no, I really think uh, Governor DeWine's a good man. He's, uh, you know, maybe a little misguided on this, but he has the best intentions. My A, Gary Click laid it out yesterday at that post-override uh, press conference. The doctors and the others, this should not be a partisan decision. It should be bipartisan to protect kids from foolish, permanent, life-altering and uh, uh, body-altering, body-destroying decisions when they're young. It just, this should not be something that's hard for anyone to figure out, much less somebody who calls himself a Republican. And I'm certain that was probably one of the reasons why we have a censure that has been handed down to Governor Mike DeWine by the Medina County uh, Republican Party of Medina County joining us now to discuss this, as uh, mentioned, is uh, Greg or excuse me, Mark Williams. Mark is the uh, executive vice chairman of the Medina County GOP and Central Committee chairman as well. Uh, hey, uh, Mark, good to have you on our program. How are you? I'm well, Bob. Thanks for having me. So this was huge. I, I saw the message yesterday from Tom Wyand that uh, that the Medina County GOP was censuring the governor. I. I didn't think anybody could do that, or I didn't think anybody was planning that. Can you tell me why the Medina County GOP made this, uh, made the, took this action? Sure. Um, so we had our, our committee meeting last night. This is very fresh. Uh, mm-hmm. We were very glad to see that the House was able to override the veto. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, they had a, a veto-proof vote the first time. Uh, they added to that with the override, and that's fantastic. And we hope that the, the Senate... Uh, likewise complies with that and, and overrides. Uh, we fully expect that to be the case. Uh, but the reason that the uh, Republican Party of Medina County Executive Committee last night decided to 
handout that censure. And it was not a unanimous vote, but certainly there were a lot of uh, opinions expressed in that meeting. And the reason we did that is because we feel uh, that our values as Republicans, as conservatives, are family values. And we want to stand up for our kids in, in both of the issues. You know, there's really two major issues here at play. And it's, you know, are we able to surgically alter our children before their age of majority? Uh, and are we going to protect uh, young ladies in sports when so that they don't have males competing against them? Uh, and I think that complying with what we understand to be our values, uh, family values, it, it's pretty clear as you said it's not really a partisan issue it's a pretty clear uh, decision for us yeah it certainly should be and thank you by the way for reminding me i i, I kind of get so caught up in the transitioning thing uh that i i i, I pay you know uh short shrift to to the save women's sports part of this um because you know they used to be two separate bills obviously and then they kind of got folded together uh both are equally important i think um but i but i haven't talked enough about that have you guys heard uh, from any medina county parents or young female athletes about how important this is to them that they will never in the state of ohio have to worry about competing against boys uh, I don't know that we've had direct input. It wasn't a part of our conversation last night. Uh, that was more of a morals and value statement that we made. And again, we had two different documents that we issued last night. We had the censure of the governor for his veto uh, and for what we consider disregard of, of the actions of the majority of the House and Senate. Uh, and then we had a document that we put out to congratulate the House, thank them for that, for our local representatives, Sharon Ray and Melanie Miller, uh, supporting that uh, and encouraging the Senate to do likewise. So I don't know that we've had uh, output or input from outside parents, but many of us, if not all of us on that committee, are parents. Uh, mm-hmm. So we understand what that looks like. So well, I think yeah, it's and- important. It is very, I completely concur. We're, we're talking to Mark Williams, the Medina County GOP executive vice chairman and central, excuse me, committee chairman about the last night's censure. Are you aware of any other, uh, county GOPs, uh, in, in the state that are considering something like this as well? I mean, obviously it's, it's not going to carry, you know, any kind of, uh, punitive, you know, uh, weight or anything of that nature. It's symbolic to censure the governor like this, but I think it's important. Do you know of any others that are going to do this? Uh, I am unaware of any specific parties. I do know there has been discussion in the past. There was a lot of activity and uh, vocal expressions to the governor, as you had mentioned before, during the, the COVID tyranny. Um, mm-hmm. I would expect other parties to, to at least take a look at it. Uh, but we felt, as a party, we felt that it was important that we support the House and the Senate and that we let the governor know that this is not what we feel to be Republican Party values. Uh, so we feel that, you know, as you said, it's not like this is going to cost him money or, uh, you know, cost him a reelection. But we do feel that it's important that we speak our voices, that we represent the people in Medina County that were put there to represent. Yeah, I think that's well said. Uh, it really is important to do that. And it's also important because, you know, the, the, the fight isn't over. That's the, the strange part about this, Mark, is the Senate still has to act. Um, it's not overridden until both chambers of the General Assembly do their jobs here. And uh, Matt Huffman, I guess, is I don't know he's going to wait until they come back on the 24th to do this. But I think, personally, a censure like this sends a message to them as well, to the senators. You know, don't I don't want anybody to get cold feet here. I don't need Mike DeWine, you know, trying to peel off any of those senators who voted for the SAFE Act the first time uh, by, uh, you know, saying, hey, look what I did with my executive order. I'm already doing what you wanted. You don't need to override me here. It's important that we send a message to the Senate that they still have a job to do. Correct.
So uh, tell tell me a little. I'm going to read a portion of the language here, uh, Greg, and tell me how you. Or I keep saying Greg Williams. I have Greg Williams on the mind. I don't know why. From the Browns, former Browns coach. I keep saying that. And I do apologize, Mark. Um, whereas the Safe Act provisions of HB 68 would have protected children from medical experimentation. I love that language. It's exactly what safe means. Uh, and surgical mutilation, also being blunt and upfront about this, as prevent uh, by preventing physicians from prescribing cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers, as well as performing any type of sex reassignment surgery on minors. HB 68 would have pro- prohibited mental health professionals from diagnosing and treating a minor for gender-related issues without the consent of the patient's par- uh, parents or legal guardian. So, Mark, did you guy? I mean, who wrote this? Uh, was it written as a committee, or did you take input from medical professionals when you signed? that important medical information so we have a policy committee that meets discusses deliberates on things like this and they felt it very important that we look at this issue as a committee we did this internally uh, as our committee we didn't uh, seek any outside medical expertise on this one but um, I, I'm pretty sure the house has done a pretty good job of that so that was the basis of our decision Okay, and um, it's uh, it, it, like I said, the language is important here. How do you respond to those who would criticize you? I know that the representatives are on online fighting back because, and not that the world lives on Twitter slash X, but so much of uh, the public, you know, public square, if you will, this is where people talk. Uh, they're attacking the representatives yesterday, the sixty-five, and many of them are online defending their decisions. Um, how do you respond to critics of uh, of you know the Republican Party of Medina County for censuring the governor over this? I think that they're welcome to have input. Uh, that's that's the beauty of our system. Uh, you know, the system worked in this case. The legislature passed a bill. The governor overrode it, and the system worked where the representatives of the people were able to override that veto. Uh, and, and people are welcome to get involved in the system throughout. But I would ask them or encourage them to take a look at what actually we're deciding. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about kids who have feelings in one direction, but the parents have decisions to make, and, and that was, I think, the governor's point of why he uh, vetoed it. He thought that uh, the families should make the decisions, but there are things that we don't allow parents to do. You know, parents aren't allowed to let kids smoke cigarettes. They aren't allowed to let them uh, drive underage. Those are safety things that we have for our kids and for our society. That's the basis of this decision, and I think it's a common-sense decision. So. Gosh, that is so perfectly well stated about cigarettes or they're not, we don't allow parents to give their kids alcohol. If they host an alcohol party, they're going to be arrested. I mean, you're exactly right because parents are expected to protect their kids from dangerous things. And what is more dangerous than permanently uh, irreversible uh, damaging their bodies by blocking their puberty, their natural development, and then, of course, by actually going through with surgical mutilation? That is, that is abusive, and we don't allow parents to abuse kids. That's where government does step in, right? Correct. Yeah, uh, it's such an important statement. Last thing, Tom reminds me, Mark Williams, that um, uh, Medina County was the first to censure the governor over the COVID-19 response as well. Um, and he, and I think he said 19 counties followed in that regard. Is that accurate? Uh, it sounds correct uh, from memory. The reason I ask if it's accurate is I don't know, did you get a response after that censure? Because I'm wondering if there will be any response or any even acknowledgement of this censure by the governor or his office. I, that I'm aware of, we did not. Uh, our chairman, Jim Ernese, does have uh, open lines of communication with the state level of government. Mm-hmm. He does a very good job of keeping those lines open, and we have uh, 
a great representative to the state committee, state party committee, uh, Bill Hack, who does a great job of bringing us information. But I'm not aware of any specific correspondence we had from the governor or his office about that COVID situation, and I don't expect any here. Uh, he made his decision. He had his reasoning for that, or his team did, and I, I would expect that you know, what we were doing was using our voice, speaking for the people who don't have that level of voice, uh, and congratulating the House and the Senate and letting the governor know that's not okay. Bingo. That's what makes this so important. You did. You gave voice to the people who couldn't reach the governor by themselves, but at least this, from on behalf of the entire Republican Party in Medina County, is a message that has been sent saying, we disapprove of what the governor did here. We want to do what is right by kids. Mark Williams, Medina County GOP, Executive Vice Chairman. Great work that you guys did. I'm so glad that you announced this last night and so glad to have you on this morning to uh, to trumpet this. Um, we need to now to keep that pressure on the Senate so that we can get the Ohio Senators to do the to do the same thing so that we can indeed protect Ohio's kids from bad decisions, either by themselves or their parents. Uh, Mark, thank you so much. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate the time. Yes, sir. All right, there's Mark Williams. I don't, for some reason, the, the, uh, I, I saw the name Mark Williams, I don't know, four times this morning as I prepped my show, and for some reason I kept picturing the face of Greg Williams. Remember the former Browns defense coordinator? I don't know why Greg Williams stuck in my head, but uh, anyway, that's Mark Williams, and um, terrific, terrific uh, censure here. HB 68 would also have prevented health care providers from assisting minors to receive these procedures in other states, whereas the Save Women's Sports Act provisions of HB 68 would have banned biological males from competing in women's sports at the collegiate and K-12 levels in the state of Ohio, whereas on December 29th, 2023, Governor Mike DeWine vetoed HB 68. Now, therefore, be it resolved by the Republican Party of Medina County that Governor Mike DeWine, having acted contrary to the principles of the Republican Party, the intention of the Ohio legislature, and the disposition of the constituents he is supposed to represent in his elected office is hereby censured for his veto of HB 68 on December 29, 2023, passed January 10th, 2024. So to the Medina County GOP again, I say... Can you dig it? Yes, indeed, I can. We're going to get a... Uh, we're going to get a time out here. We're going to come back. I've got more information about this. Then at 1010, we've got Dr. Everett Piper. He'll react to this along with a number of other very important. Okay, 953 as we uh, again celebrate um, enthusiastically the override yesterday by the House and we look cautiously toward uh, the 24th. I won't be happy until it's uh, overridden by the Senate as well. It's important to respond to the left wing critics who are saying that we are putting children in danger by passing the SAFE Act, because we are not giving them gender-affirming care. What is gender-affirming care? I think this is extraordinarily important to hear. If I told you that I advocate for the chemical castration, sterilization, and physical mutilation of children and young adults, anyone under the legal age of consent, my guess is that you would consider me a crazy person, a monster, or worse. But that's exactly what activists, medical professionals, and progressives who promote and defend gender-affirming care do advocate. The problem for these gender ideologues, of course, is while it is possible to identify as anything, it is not possible for a man to be a woman or a woman to be a man. To obscure this fact, activists have manufactured a small dictionary of sweet-sounding terms like transgender, gender fluidity, and non-binary. Gender-affirming care is the phrase activists have coined to describe sex change treatments, such as puberty blockers, hormonal injections, and double mastectomies, 
Shockingly, children's hospitals are big players in this game. The Boston Children's Hospital's website has posted videos in which its doctors describe a full menu of medical treatments, including hysterectomies for gender-confused teens. The gender clinic at the Barbara Bush Children's Hospital in Maine offers instructions to boys on how to tuck their boy parts to make them look more like girl parts. Yale University's pediatric gender program director has said she's medically assisted children as young as three years old on their gender journey. Vanderbilt University Medical Center has assessed gender care to be a new profit center. One of its doctors explained why. Attempting to change someone's sex creates a permanent patient. Knowing patients will have to return for repeated treatments is a guaranteed moneymaker. Even the American Academy of Pediatrics has endorsed the medical and chemical treatment of gender-confused children. When some members asked for a more critical look at affirmative care, they were immediately shut down, accused of being transphobic. The Pediatrics Academy did not stop there. It teamed up with the American Medical Association and the Children's Hospital Association to petition the Justice Department to suppress anyone on social media who opposes their pro-gender treatment position. While the American medical establishment speeds toward the affirmative care cliff, other countries are hitting the brakes. The United Kingdom has shuttered its state-run Tavistock Gender Identity Clinic, which was the largest pediatric gender clinic in the world, after a report found that its patients were at considerable risk due to its unquestioning affirmative approach. A more accurate description for this approach would be medical malpractice. In no other part of the medical world is it considered acceptable or even legal to damage the body of a healthy person irreversibly. If a mentally ill man who identifies as an amputee asks a doctor to amputate his perfectly functioning arm to match his identity, every self-respecting surgeon will send him away. If a young girl suffering from anorexia walks into a hospital and asks for liposuction, no one in their right mind would grant her request. And that's because physicians swear an oath to do no harm, to preserve and protect and heal a person's body as best as they can in spite of any delusions the person may be experiencing. And yet doctors violate that oath every time they promote gender-affirming care. Their motives, no matter how compassionate they might sound, are not relevant. The idea that teenagers, let alone small children, are capable of making such life-altering decisions is not only brand new, it's absurd. A society that allows them to do so is deeply broken. So, how do we put an end to this horror? First, we need to stop going along with the language games gender ideologues want us to play. There are men and women and boys and girls. And there are men and women and boys and girls who are confused or deluded about which one they are. There is no such thing as having a place on a gender spectrum. With the rarest exceptions, we are born one of two sexes, male or female. Sex is not assigned. It is an integral part of who we are right from the moment of conception. This is true for horses, dolphins, and every other species in the animal kingdom. It is also true for human beings. There is no such thing as gender-affirming care. You cannot affirm something that does not exist. What does exist is chemical castration, sterilization, and surgical mutilation. Second, we need legal accountability. 
Patients who have undergone physical and medical gender treatments as minors should be able to sue the doctors and hospitals who performed the treatments. The risk of serious financial liability will bring this barbarism to an end faster than a 100 protests. This is a battle that we must win, not least because there is an entire generation of boys and girls being made to believe that irreversibly changing their bodies will fix the social and emotional anxieties they experience. We must act now. Our children are counting on us, even if they don't know it. They are, after all, just children. I'm Kate. That um, was a brilliant PragerU video from Kaylee McGee White, and I needed to share it today. There is no such thing as gender-affirming care other than telling kids they are what they were born as. Anything else is abuse. And I love the idea, by the way. We have to change the laws and allow these kids to sue after they go through all of this because the threat of financial liability. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. Alrighty then, hour number two is now underway. Very powerful opening hour. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation with uh, Mark Williams, and uh, of course, we'll continue to celebrate the passage yesterday, the override. Uh, in the Ohio State House of the Governor's veto of the SAFE Act, we'll continue to look forward and push toward the 24th when the Ohio Senate hopefully will follow suit. But uh, really important stuff there, and I hope you enjoyed that PragerU video too. Share that. I, I just an FYI, I don't. I, I'm really, really lousy at social media, and I don't promote it nearly enough. I did post on both my Facebook page, I believe, and my um, Twitter page today that particular PragerU video about gender-affirming care, uh, about what it is and what it isn't. And the reality is it isn't, because there's there's no such thing um, when you can't change genders or sexes. Anyway, um, that information is stuff that I think you need to share. Find it on my Twitter page. Just look for Bob France or France Rance. Find it on my Facebook page, which is either by name if we're a personal friend or on the um, radio page, which is Always Right Radio. Uh, but find that and share that with other people. There's information there that people just don't understand. If you hear anybody hand-wringing about the uh, passage of the SAFE Act and the override and it's going to cost children their lives and all of this other nonsense, please, please, please share the important information in that video with them. All right. As it is a Thursday, the 11th morning of the first month in the year of our Lord 2024, you know what that means. It's a Piper Day. Dr. Everett Piper, our good friend and uh, one of the generals in this culture war that we did not start that, but uh, that we must win. Dr. Piper is a former university president. He is a best-selling author. He's a weekly, twice-weekly columnist with the Washington Times. He is also um, a uh, county commissioner in Osage County, Oklahoma. Dr. Piper, good morning. Good to have you back. How are you? Belated, but happy new year. Yeah, it is a little bit belated, but uh, yes, happy new year. It's a big year for all of us. All eyes are on November for a variety of reasons, but there's a lot of work to be done between now and then. So, Dr. Piper, there's a lot of work to be done between now and 1030 as well. So let's uh, let's dive right into your first article of the week. Um, the left is trying to get rid of us. And by us, I mean people, all people. 
you did a phenomenal summary here and commentary on those who are calling for humans to essentially stop polluting the planet with their existence. There are too many of us. We have to take steps to make sure there are fewer of us so that, I don't know, what, more trees can can thrive and prosper? I don't understand what Earth is for if it isn't for humans, but that's my uh, narrow-mindedness, perhaps. Can you tell us more? Well, there's an excellent article in Fox News Digital that was written by Jeffrey Clark. He's an associate editor mm-hmm. for that particular site. He does a great job of summarizing what he calls the extinction agenda of the left. Now, it sounds a little hyperbolic and exaggeration, but it's really not, because we hear it over and over again. We need to get rid of a bunch of people if the planet is to survive. We're overpopulated. We've got to do this either through birth control, abortion, and some would even argue assisted uh, death, euthanasia. Um, The bottom line is the left believes that human beings are bad. We're the problem. We're not the solution. And it's no surprise, quite frankly, that we've come to this point. Um, I cite several different people on the left who are wringing their hands about overpopulation. There's Ginger Z, a meteorologist with ABC's Good Morning America, who says that she's anxious about, quote-unquote, doing that again, having another child for the sake of the planet. She thought her, 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 her family was criticizing her for getting pregnant a second time and saying that she shouldn't have done that again for the sake of the planet. And she was sympathizing or resonating with that concern. Then you have Britt Ray, a writer for Jen Dredd newsletter, where Britt says that women are spooked and anxious and in some cases fully traumatized because of climate change and the cost of having children, the carbon cost therein. You have Jude Sasser, associate professor of gender and sexuality studies at the University of California, Riverside, who has said this, and I quote, I'm not a parent and I will not be a parent. And then she bemoaned the damage that humans are doing to the planet. Then you've got brilliant folks such as Miley Cyrus, who is saying, until I feel like my kid would live on an earth with fish in the water, I'm not bringing another person into the situation to deal with that. Then you've got Prince Harry. He's saying that the maximum number of children per couple should be two. Well, who's going to legislate that? Who's going to control that? Are we going to become communist China? Probably so if they were to have their way. What's fueling all of this? This is what we should be asking. What ideas have led to this groundswell of opinion from the left and even some in the middle? Those that say, well, the climate is in danger, and therefore the solution is to get rid of some of the people. If you ultimately go to the extreme, you end up with... Pianca, a professor of zoology and biology at the University of Texas. He died in 2022, I might add, but he said in 2006 when he got the Texas Academy of Science Award um, for the scientist of the year from that, from that given uh, academy, he said that the earth is in trouble. We need to reduce the population by approximately 90%. There's not enough time for birth control or natural death to solve the problem. We need something more accelerated. And then he started talking about an airborne pathogen. He actually said this. So I would argue the reason we're here is because of what we're teaching in our schools. We're teaching radical Darwinism. We're teaching that human beings are just the product of the primordial soup. We've risen up out of the mass, just like every other biological matter that is around us. And therefore, we're not morally distinct from the dog, the pig, the cat, the cow, or even a virus. 
So if people judge that human beings are overpopulating the planet and causing problems, then there's no real moral reason to favor humanity over and above the dog, the pig, the cat, the cow, or even the virus. And maybe the virus should win and not the human being. Radical Darwinism goes there because of survival of the fittest. And that is where we are right now. We've been teaching this garbage in our schools for a couple generations, if not more, and those ideas are coming home to roost. If we need to save the planet, do the right thing and get rid of the problem organism. The problem organism happens to be our children. That's what these people are actually arguing. Did uh, did Eric Pianca kill himself? He died in 2022, uh, 2022, you said? I don't think he killed himself. He may have. I'm just, I'm guessing because of the because of the timing that he was elderly and he may have been he may have died of covid don't know that for a fact but if that is true isn't it ironic that this man who was arguing for an airborne pathogen to solve the problem of yeah. overpopulation that he died of that very thing if that's true well i just wanted to put him you know put him to the test there to find out how, how committed he is to this idea he said uh depopulation cannot be accomplished via natural death so i hope he's volunteering to i hope that's what he did was volunteer to say i'm gonna i'm gonna live the example here it's amazing to me how many of these people who say there need to be fewer humans aren't taking their own lives and by the way i'm not advocating for that this is tongue-in-cheek about mr pianca or professor pianca but in all seriousness it's funny it it kind of goes back to and i think it was reagan dr piper who said uh once it's on the abortion issue it's funny all of those who are pro-abortion have already been born it's kind of an interesting coincidence how that works well it's funny how those who are calling for no more people have already become people who have already been here they are here and they're not willing to take themselves out uh uh you know uh by their own hand in order to save the planet for future i don't even know what not future generations, because they don't want any more kids being born. So what? Who's the planet go to if 90% of humanity is wiped out? Then what? What's the what's the dominant species then? I'm just kind of curious. Well, and, and <clears throat> theologically, ontologically, um, practically, these people don't care because their ideas, I'm going to go back to the main point I'm trying to make here, mm-hmm. ideas have consequences. And if you believe that you are the product of the primordial ooze, that you rose up out of the swamp, just like the amoeba, the frog, and ultimately evolved into a human being, then you have to conclude that you have no moral quality above and beyond that dog or that fish that Miley Cyrus bemoaned. Because if people are no, if they're no, have no greater value than fish, then let the fish win. That's where these people have to go in their rationality. People don't right. matter any longer, except them. The elites matter because they should be in the 10% that survive. Exactly right. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Everett Piper. Let's move on to number two before we get to some of the other things, and we'll take a break here. Um, ask Dr. E this week. Uh, in the Washington Times, overwhelmed, in, and I love that you turn once again to the brilliant C.S. Lewis for the answer here. Here's the question from overwhelmed in Oklahoma, or from Oklahoma. Dear Dr. E, I'm so upset with the current state of our country. Our leaders are immoral. Our borders are meaningless. The economy is in a shambles. And our military is woke and our schools are awful. Our nation is so divided that I honestly fear that regardless of who wins the presidency this coming November, we may have seen our last peaceful transition of power in America. Do you have any words of encouragement for the dark days ahead? And this is where you channel C.S. Lewis again. Fire away. Okay, I'll be brief. Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. Many consider them to be children's stories, so as adults we skip past them and we don't read them anymore. Mistake. Go and read the Chronicles of Narnia. And on this particular uh, question, go and read 
The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In that particular story, you have the children, Edmund, Lucy, and Eustace, and they go on a journey with Prince Caspian across the Great Eastern Ocean in a ship called the Dawn Treader. Well, in their journey, they are they stop on an island, and it's called the Island of the Duffel Pugs. The Duffel Pugs are invisible creatures that are that are pestering these uh, these Narnian kids. They're threatening them. They're challenging them, but the kids can't see what this threat really is. They know that they're called duffel pugs, but they don't know what this creature really is, and it's threatening, and it's, it's rather intimidating. So what these duffel pugs tell the children they have to do is go into the magician's house and scale the stairs and go into the room and up, or get the book of incantations and read the spell to make hidden things visible, because the duffel pugs want to be seen. So Lucy, the youngest of the children, does this. She's scared, and she does with trepidation. She climbs the stairs, she finds the book of incantations, she reads the spell to make hidden things visible, and lo and behold, these duffel pugs, these scary creatures, are nothing but silly little dwarves, one-legged dwarves, that don't have any power whatsoever over anybody. So the threat is made visible for being less than it really is. But here's the moral of the story. Something else is made visible. Something else that has been invisible that can now be seen is Aslan, the Christ character of the Chronicles of Narnia. And Lucy sees Aslan standing in the doorway of the magician's house, and she runs with joy and goes over to greet him. She says, Aslan, Aslan, it's so good to see you. I'm so glad you've come. And Aslan says, I've been here all along. You have just made me visible. What's the moral of the story? Well, this is the power of a biblical worldview, the gospel. Our perceptions and fears have no bearing whatsoever on God's, God's on, omnif- on, excuse me, omniscience and omnipotence and his sovereignty. God is always present. He's not somewhere out there in the distant heathers of the regions of the universe. He's right here with us all the time. Our fears are often overblown. He's here and his, he sees what's going on, he sees the threatening things, he sees what's unfair. We can't get beyond his control, and we need to rest in that particular assurance of God's constancy in our lives. There's a great poem by Francis Thompson, the author of The Hound of Heaven. This poem is titled, In No Strange Land, and the poem, one of the phrases in the poem is this, The angels keep their ancient places, turn but a stone, and start a wing. Tis ye, tis your estranged faces that misses the many splendored things. What's Francis Thompson saying? The angels are all around us. Just kick over a stone and you're going to start their wings of fluttering. It's just your strange face, your face that turns away from God and misses the things that are most important that, that causes you to not see the splendor around us. Recognize that God is always here. See, Dr. Piper, that's why what you do is so extraordinarily important. Um, you did something that I think, if it had, if it had been asked of me, um, would have been impossible to do. You did find words of encouragement. I am more like, and I think more people <clears throat> at this moment in time in our country are like overwhelmed from Oklahoma. I can sit here and tick off all of the individual things that are wrong, one after the other, after the other, after the other, and it becomes overwhelming. It becomes very, very difficult to keep your head up and to see the light at the end of the dark tunnel or the uh, silver lining in, in the dark clouds, whatever you want to call it. Uh, most of us can't find the encouragement, and uh, you have so much knowledge and you have such a great way of expressing it, uh, using the words of C.S. Lewis and blending it with others, including your own. It is, uh, it is, it is 
so extraordinarily important that you continue to give us that hope and that light, and that's very important. So thank you for that. Dr. Piper, I'm going to give you a break, take a quick time out. I'm going to come back and talk about academia, uh, which, of course, is a big... Once you see the long list of quality job opportunities available, you'll never settle for just a job again. Visit ChristianJobs.com, ChristianJobs.com. Okay, we've only got four minutes here. It's 1026 to talk about this next one, so we're going to dive right in. Uh, Dr. Everett Piper continues with us. So, Dr. Piper, turning our attention to uh, higher education, um, you know, DEI is all the rage. We need to be inclusive. Typically, diversity and inclusion, uh, it's focusing more on race and a lot on the, you know, the LGBTQ plus, uh, uh, you know, nonsense. Um, but this story is one about good old-fashioned sexism. Um, a group is preparing to sue. These are MIT alumni to sue the world's most prestigious technical college, MIT, because they are intentionally rejecting male applicants for far less qualified female ones. This is not dissimilar from the, again, the racial uh, discrimination practiced at Harvard and North Carolina and a lot of other places when it comes to students. But uh, um, now we're talking about just too many men. There's too many men of all colors. We need to bring more women and more uh, females in, regardless of their academic standards and qualifications. Your thoughts? Well, this is an example of doing the exact opposite of what Martin Luther King challenged us to do, uh, that we should judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And ironically today, the DEI experts, these elites, believe that Martin Luther King Jr. apparently was a bigot because he argued for something that they consider to be um, akin to white supremacy and uh, male hegemony. They consider now the words of Martin Luther King Jr. to be antithetical to what it means to be a just society. And it's also, let's just cut to the chase. What this does is it in a race-centric world, if you show favor to one group of people, then you, by definition, have to be diminishing another group that is opposite of those that you just showed favor to. So if you show favor to women, then you're going to have to show disfavor to men because you've got to tip the scales in favor of the 50% of the population that you consider to be superior for this particular position or lot in life. Likewise, focusing on blacks versus whites or whites versus blacks. When you show favor to one particular group, by definition, it bumps another group into the disfavor category. This is not the way to hire people because what happens is you end up with people that are mediocre because you had people in the disfavored category that might have been better qualified. They might have been better for the job, but you didn't consider them because of your bias against that particular group by virtue of gender or color or whatever else. This is what you're seeing in the Ivy League right now as it implodes before our very eyes. You've got lightweight researchers such as Claudine Gay, who was a plagiarist, who had to be fired because not just was she an anti-Semitic or at least couldn't find the right words to condemn Hamas, she actually is a plagiarist. She never should have gotten the job in the first place. So you have to ask yourself, why did she get the job? Is it possible because she's female and she is included in other favored categories to the exclusion of the disfavored? Yeah, it's... uh... It's it's so frustrating, and I love the fact that you pointed it out. They would see Martin Luther King Jr. as a bigot. 
Because, because I mean, how how dare you judge somebody by content and not by color? It's all about numbers, and it's all about uh, it's all about making sure that the you know campus is diversified enough. And it doesn't matter who gets hurt in the process if that is not discriminatory, and if that is not um, I can't even think of enough words, quite frankly, to describe how wrong that is um, and and how harmful that is to academia going forward. I don't know what we can say. Uh, Dr. Everett Piper, terrific uh, to talk to you again. Thank you so very much for your time and your great work, and we will talk to you again next Thursday. All right. Bye-bye. That's Everett Piper on AM 1420, The Answer. We'll take a time out now. When we come back, we're going to talk about another issue altogether, money. Your money, our money, the nation's money, and why it is that our conservative leadership in Congress is willing to roll over. The Answer. Keeping you informed among the uninformed. Always write radio with Bob France on The Answer. All right, 1035 now. We go from the culture wars to the fiscal ones. I don't want you to turn off the radio because you hear us talking about money. People don't like to hear, you know, oh, we're in debt, oh, we're in debt. But honestly, the fact that people don't like to hear about it is the reason this country is $33 trillion in debt. The fact that we don't want to hear about the budget negotiations on Capitol Hill, the fact that they can continue to pass one continuing resolution after another, the fact that uh, they continue to spend as if we aren't $30 trillion. I mean, we, we ignore this at our own peril, both now and, then, as I said before, our children, our children. And you probably do that about forward uh, before this thing ever gets under control. It is to our, at our own peril that we ignore this. So I don't want you to ignore this. We're $33 trillion in debt, and our new conservative, remember, that's why they booted Kevin McCarthy largely. We have a conservative Speaker of the House. Um, Speaker Johnson, Mike Johnson, is is rolling over and letting, and letting Chuck Schumer and, and Hakeem Jeffries and Joe Biden get whatever they want. I mean, we're not even coming down to a, a, a deadline, a spending deadline, a deal deadline on the 19th. They agreed a few days ago, 12 days before. Yep, we're good. $1.66 trillion in new spending is going to run the government in 2024. Not even putting up a fight. It's frustrating. Joining us now to react to it is uh, Romina Bacha. She is Director of Budget and Entitlements Policy at the Cato Institute. She can tell us a little bit more about what's in this deal and what's wrong with it and... We're going to talk about what's responsible for over a third, over actually over 40% of that uh, $33 trillion in debt, emergency spending. Romina, thank you for joining us. How are you this morning? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. We're going to steer people to your Substack Debt Dispatch in just a moment here, and we'll talk about emergency spending. But let's talk about this emergency. Um, By Joe Biden issued a very brief statement talking about how he was perfectly happy with this new one point six six trillion dollar budget for 2024. Uh, Chuck Schumer uh, essentially did the same thing. And that tells me that Mike Johnson put up no fight whatsoever. Uh, can you give me your analysis of what we learned last week when this uh, some of the details anyway, not all of them, but of the budget uh, agreement that is going to be voted upon uh, were released? Yes. So, first of all, I would say that this funding deal continues Washington business as usual. And this is why the House Freedom Caucus members are so upset about it, because they've they've been very clear that they want to cut spending back to pre-pandemic. That means fiscal year 2020 or you know back in 2019 uh, levels. And uh, and the deal doesn't do that. The deal spends about 300 billion more 
than uh, we did pre-pandemic. And that's one issue. It also spends more than we did in fiscal year 2023. And so um, from those objective measures, it is a bad deal that is not affordable at a time when we have $2 trillion deficits. And like you said, the debt is now $34 trillion actually, which is uh, about $100,000 for every American man, woman, and child. <laughs> and, uh, and so this, this, is, this is the troubling part, right? I would say that uh, Speaker Johnson did negotiate on the margin. So this deal is somewhat better than what McCarthy negotiated back in May. It uh, curbs some of the emergency spending abuse that the Democrats were asking for, cutting that in half. And it also uh, puts a cap on a well-known budget gimmick that's called changes in mandatory programs, where Congress gets the double count spending. Um, so there are these marginal improvements that uh, that the House Speaker Johnson is trying to highlight as, uh, uh, you know, a small win for fiscal restraint. But uh, um, it really looks like uh, the White House and Senate Democrats had the upper hand in these negotiations. Yeah, they did. Very, very small win uh, in fiscal restraint, if any at all. And like I said, the fact that Biden walked away happy and they're not threatening, you know, a shutdown of government because of the Republicans negotiating in bad faith, if they're happy, he didn't do it right. Uh, and, and I'm not saying I want a permanent state of gridlock when it comes to the budget. I, I'm not. But but honestly, if if. Um, if they're walking away happy and Mike Johnson isn't being called names by them, that means Mike Johnson gave up too much. And I don't know exactly what, how many of the the ridiculous discretionary spending items and the and the projects, pet projects that were greenlit previously that are still in this new spending or not. But if we don't roll those things back mm-hmm. in addition to the new ones, uh, uh, Romina, then like I said, it it just that's how the mountain continues to be made taller, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. Those pet projects, also called earmarks Mm -hmm. in Washington speak, are still in there. And, you know, I would say that that's something that other than, you know, really fiscally conservative members, um, they want those earmarks, too. It is an election year. They want to be able to tell their people in their districts, look, I got this money for you. You should vote for me again. This is what this is about. And I think that there is actually a majority of Republicans and Democrats, is my sense, that support pushing this bill forward so they can get those earmarks and they can do that ribbon cutting and those photo ops for, you know, all the money they're going to funnel into their local projects. So uh, this is Washington politics as usual, and it shows that neither Democrats nor Republicans have really grasped the severity of the fiscal crisis that we're staring down Mm -hmm. uh, with this rapidly rising debt. Uh, I would like to point out that uh, a, a nonpartisan model, the Penn-Wharton budget model, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, indicating that if we don't rein in, especially entitlement spending, which is driving 95% of our unfunded obligations, that's just Medicare and Social Security. So anyone who's not willing to tackle those programs is basically saying, let the f- fiscal crises come knocking on the door, you know, and we won't be ready and uh, uh, that over the next 15 to 20 years, their model just breaks, which is like the country cannot sustain the projected deficits. And what are those? Just, you know, this sounds like a big number, so I'll try to break it down. But over the next 30 years, the federal government is projected to borrow $120 trillion, which is uh, 
more than three times the current national debt of $34 trillion. Uh, oh, it's up to 34. Say? I've been saying 33 all along. I apologize. How silly of me. Yeah, it's 34 now. <laughs> that happened, uh, you know, just uh, like a few days ago. So okay. <laughs> yeah, it went kind of from 33 to 34 in about uh, three, four months. So, you know, you can't be excused for not being up to date. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard. You see that debt clock. Sometimes people will throw that debt clock up there, and it just literally makes your head spin as the dial spins uh, on how fast uh, it continues with all of the interest and so forth. But I apologize for the interruption. Yeah. We'll get to the emergency spending. Finish your thought there. Though. Yeah, and so the with those projections, the U.S. would accumulate as much debt in 30 years as it accumulated over the preceding 270 years. And so this is what investors are looking at when they're demanding higher interest rates right now, because they're saying, how are you going to finance this? Like, who is going to lend all this money to the United States? Most likely, the Federal Reserve is going to need to step in. And what that means is printing money, which means inflation, which means investors are demanding higher interest rates to compensate for that risk of inflation down the road. Got it. We're talking to Romina Bacha. She's the director of budget and entitlements policy at the Cato Institute. She's also uh, runs a. This is yours, I assume. Uh, the debt dispatcher. Mm-hmm. Did you and Dominic just contribute to it? No, I launched that. Yours. That's my Substack. Yep. Want to send people to uh, to this Substack, uh, debtdispatch.substack.com, and uh, the the most recent entry there is curbing federal emergency spending. And uh, the details of a new study that have been released here. I was blown away by this. Since 1992, when Bill Clinton came into office, the federal government has been spending on emergency spending levels to the tune of 12 trillion of those 34 trillion dollars. That's over 40 percent of the total national debt. We hear that from time to time about emergency emergency spending measures, and we just think, well, it must be an emergency. It's a one-time thing. It's been going on now for over 30 years, and, and this is responsible, again, for, for over 40% of the debt. Can you t- give us more uh, detail on that, Romy? Yes, yes. So emergency spending was intended for times when Congress had already passed a budget, and then something unexpected happened, and they needed to pass a supplemental that would inevitably break the budget because they didn't anticipate it. So that is intended for major hurricanes, national disasters, where the federal government has a role to play. In, uh, in, 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 in Over the past three decades, it has become a convenient loophole for members of Congress to just break the budget, label something emergency, and then nobody would bat an eye. That's exactly what has happened. Many members mm. of Congress are unaware of the size and scope of this emergency spending loophole and how much it's contributed to our national debt. And it was actually quite difficult to produce this study because one of our recommendations is to increase accountability and transparency in this space because the the Congressional Budget Office, the Government Accountability Office, all these great government agencies that produce, you know, fantastic government reports, they don't actually produce a report tallying up uh, emergency spending so Dominic had to go through line by line through all the spending bills that Congress passed over the last 30 years. It took several months to tally up these figures, which we make publicly available for anyone who wants to do their own analysis that's linked in our paper, um, because we want to be transparent and accountable 
for how we arrived at these figures. So this is really about believe me, nobody attention. is going to want to nobody is going to want to review months and months <laughs> and months of thirty years of line by line emergency spending. Tell Dominic thank you for the work that he does uh, and did on this uh, because we're just going to take his word for it. But uh, go on. I will. Yes. So we're trying to bring attention that this is a much bigger issue than legislators and the public understand, and that most things that are labeled as emergency spending aren't so, that it's just a convenient way to bust the budget, and we need to bring more attention to that so we can uh, curb that and control that spending, because it is out of control, and it's contributing in a big way to uh, our our debt crises. So that's something that uh, Congress needs to tackle, and we have a number of reforms that would do that, including ending uh, the never-ending emergency powers that the executive uh, has obtained. Uh, like one of the biggest recommendations is that uh, we should, Congress should have to approve emergencies declared by the president, that if the president declares an, an emergency, then uh, if Congress doesn't approve it within 30 days, that emergency would automatically end because we have too much executive overreach when it comes to this. For example, uh, when President Biden decided to provide student loan debt forgiveness, which the Supreme Court struck down, um, he did so using emergency powers. Uh, that was, you know, $400 billion in deficit spending that Congress did not approve. And the Constitution is very clear that it's, Congress has the power of the purse, not the executive. So this is this is another example of where uh, the executive has overreached using its emergency powers, and it's up to Congress to rein that in. So, Romina, um, does Cato have the ear of anybody in Congress that can, as you say, quote, tackle this emergency spending and changing the rules of proof uh, that, it, that it truly is an emergency and it's not, as you say, just an attempt to bust the budget? Yes, we have been meeting with several offices that are interested in this issue. And since the paper has come out, uh, several more offices have reached out that want to pursue this issue from a variety of angles, including members of the House Budget Committee that are interested in uh, the accountability measures and how the CBO can help bring more light to this issue uh, in the future. Um, so there are members of Congress looking at this, and I think this paper is going to make a big contribution in getting more legislators on board uh, in addressing this. Well, I'll tell you what, um, I hope that uh, these are people who are willing to act and not just say, yeah, we'll take a meeting with the Cato people and then we'll go right on with business as usual, because sometimes drastic uh, measures or drastic uh, conditions require drastic measures. I I certainly hope that the people you are talking to are willing to bring this out. But like I said, most people's eyes glaze over. Mine do. You know, I mean, like I said, I mean, you, you lose track of the amount, you lose track of the budget deficit. You hear, oh, we're going to spend another 1.5, 1.59, and then we found out it's around $1.66 trillion. And you, people can't conceive of that. A couple of times online I've seen images, um, you know, uh, graphic uh, depictions of a stack of $100 bills, uh, you know, that would that would reach to the level of the current national debt and how it reaches like to the moon and back. I mean, uh, it's 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 just obscene to try to understand how much money we're talking about here. So our eyes glaze over. We, we don't understand it. We don't understand the, you know, the, the, the gravity of it. And, and I'll ask you this last question, Romina. What happens mm-hmm. if we don't pay? 
What happens? Somebody, I, I brought this up to somebody I interviewed on a TV show about a month ago, and 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 I can't remember who it was, but but they basically said, who is going to who is going to call us on our debt if we end up defaulting on mm-hmm. payments to some of our debtors to the point where thirty four trillion dollars and growing is never going to ever be paid off? Who 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 is is what jeopardy are we in if we don't actually keep up on this? This is something that people yeah. ask. How do you answer that? Yeah. So most of the debt, you know, the government just rolls over. And that's what investors care about. Are they going to continue to get paid? So when someone's treasury bond uh, matures, uh, someone else will buy it, you know, and that's how the government rolls it over. They just issue new debt for the old maturing debt. Uh, And the problem is that the United States can keep doing this. Unlike Greece, we issue our own currency. So the United States cannot run out of money because it literally prints it. And that's the big risk, is that what happens when a country prints too much money? Uh, Extreme examples of this include the Weimar Republic in Germany, uh, Venezuela, and Argentina, uh, Zimbabwe. So uh, in those Mm. cases, you get massive inflation, double-digit inflation, potentially hyperinflation, where inflation grows so far out of control that the central bank can't contain it anymore. Um, And... uh, you know, in the short term, what we know is that we will all suffer in terms of lower take-home pay. The uh, the latest estimates are that just because of the debt being as high as it is, Americans are looking at a loss of $13,000 in per capita income, so per person mm-hmm. uh, income, looking at our, our what the economy will be produced, $13,000 less over the next 30 years uh, because of this high level of debt. So that's sort of the mild scenario is we'll all be poorer, we'll have less innovation, uh, our living standards won't rise as quickly. And the worst case scenario is that uh, we will undermine the status of the United States as a global power. We will undermine the uh, U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, which buys us a lot of goodwill and also gives the U.S. a lot of leverage in dealing with rogue actors and protecting our nation and the classical liberal order. Um, and those are things that, uh, you know, are, are far more severe, those consequences, where what happens when the United States is no longer the supreme global power? Who's going to fill that uh, vacuum? Right. And, you know, it looks like the biggest rogue nations there are China, China and Russia, and maybe, you know, some, some group of those nations that might, uh, that might uh, collaborate. And yeah. uh, and that's a, that's a that's a real risk where a severe fiscal crisis is not something you want to find out what happens on the other end of it because it could get really ugly really quickly. That's a great point, and uh, those are the last nations in the world you would want to fill that power vacuum. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, Romina Bacha, Director of Budget and Entitlements Policy at Cato Institute. I want to thank you. This is one of the better interviews that I've had in terms of explanation. Again, a lot of people who know the kind of things you know, um, uh, and and most of the lay people out there, including myself, don't quite understand it. They don't know how to put it in terms that we can understand, but telling us that every American is going to end up with a $13,000 less in actual take-home income over 30 years, I mean, that, that really brings it home. So thank you for making this understand. Uh, keep up the great work. Thanks for blowing the doors off of the emergency spending thing. And we'll check back in with you if it's okay in, uh, in a few weeks or months uh, to find out exactly what progress Cato has made with those members of Congress you said you're dealing with. Thank you. Thank you so much. Romina Bacha from the Cato Institute. That's important work. If you want to read that work again, go to that Substack. <clears throat> 
excuse me, uh, go to that Substack, uh, debtdispatch.substack.com, debtdispatch.substack.com, and learn about this uh, extraordinarily important, uh, um, I don't I want to call it an emergency, but they are calling it an emergency. I think it's an emergency that we stop the emergency spending and the lies that they use to declare something an emergency just so they can not have to stay within the budget. That's what puts us in this hole, and it digs it even deeper, or if you're taking their properties on social media and hoping the city, their co-op, condo board, or neighbors won't find out and shut them down. More travel info at armworldtravel.com. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz. On AM fourteen twenty, the answer. All right, into our number three on this Thursday episode of Always Right Radio. It is the eleventh morning of the first month in the year of our Lord twenty twenty four. By the way, speaking of episodes, if you have not yet been watching Strictly Speaking on uh, True Blue, you're missing some phenomenal content and phenomenal interviews. Uh, yesterday's was with uh, Heather McDonald from the Manhattan Institute and. Uh, City Journal. Uh, we covered so much ground on the ongoing wokeness of academia. Uh, we're talking about the freedom of speech that has been taken away from students on campuses, taken away from you and me online, and in so many other places. Um, she's just such a brilliant, brilliant person. Uh, she was, uh, we did about an hour and 10 minutes or something like that. It was a long interview. But that one dropped yesterday. Um, we've got just, uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm very blessed to, to have uh, such tremendous people to work with and to talk to. And we're bringing you very important content. Every Monday and Wednesday and Friday is new content on the uh, uh, Strictly Speaking uh, program. And they air uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 6 a.m. roughly and 4 p.m. in the afternoon. This new one, the new one, the next one tomorrow is Chris Hansen. Now, you probably know about To Catch a Predator. Chris Hansen started taking on bad guys trying to uh, meet up underage kids uh, for, for sexual encounters. He started doing that back on NBC about 20 years ago. He's still doing it, but he's doing it with us now on True Blue, taking down predators. It's called Takedown with Chris Hansen. He sits with me for an exclusive tomorrow for over an hour. Actually, he sat with me, but you'll see it tomorrow. And again, that'll be on True Blue which you can watch uh, free on our fast channels on Roku, Plex, and uh, TCL Plus, tele- uh, T- Television Plus. You can also watch it anytime on demand. 
at uh, uh, watchtrueblue.com. That's a subscription channel. That's a subscription, but that's like four ninety nine a month. It's nothing. Uh, but uh, that's at watchtrueblue.com. So I want to encourage you to check those things out. Now, we continue our celebration today of a very important event yesterday, a smack in the face of Governor Mike DeWine. Uh, 62 people passed the SAFE Act on the House side originally. Mike DeWine vetoed it. They came back over the top of him with 65. Gary Click, the sponsor on the House side, he, House side said it's the biggest number of votes for an override that he's ever seen, particularly when you uh, uh, when you actually pick up three. Three people who either did not vote, and I don't know their names, uh, but either who did not vote the first time or voted against the SAFE Act, flipped now and voted for it. So it was a huge, huge win yesterday for uh, for everyone in the state of Ohio, quite frankly, but especially kids who are manipulated and being uh, indoctrinated and groomed into a lifestyle that they absolutely will come to regret later on. Uh, so it's a huge, huge win yesterday to come over the top of Mike DeWine. But the job is not done. The job won't be done now, apparently, until at the earliest, <clears throat> January 24th, when the state Senate comes back. Senator Matt Huffman, uh, who is the Senate president, um, I don't know if he declined or never considered bringing them back early the way Stevens did on the House side. But we do have to wait now another 13 days before they can do this. Then a 90-day countdown clock begins on the law taking effect. And joining us now to talk about all of that and what it will look like is State Senator Michael Rooley, District 33. That's Youngstown Boardman area, Columbiana, Carrollton counties, and so forth. But most importantly, he's an important voter in the override on the Senate side that is to come to pass the SAFE Act. Uh, Senator, really good to have you on the program. How are you? Good morning, Bob. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. I was uh, very, very encouraged yesterday. But, uh, you know, at the same time I was celebrating and I was watching Gary Click's press conference and I was reading the celebratory mentions from so many others on the House side, I'm still frustrated that it, that it took this, that it takes this. I mean, I'm still angry that Mike DeWine took something that passed with veto-proof majorities on both sides and slapped a veto on it. Were you surprised by that? I was very surprised. I mean, this is very simple elementary stuff i mean it doesn't it doesn't even seem like it's possible that this should be an issue in this day and age this is you know for anyone that's listening that thinks there's something controversial about this this is us protecting kids that's what this is so when you're over 18 in the united states of america we believe in freedom and you do what you want to do and as long as you don't impede on anyone's freedom we're good to go but this bill in particular is only about protecting kids. So it almost should be called the Child Protection Act because that's what it does. And, and, and there's two parts of it. So House Bill 68 started out in the House, and that deals with more or less the medical end of it, how we are not going to let you have puberty blockers. God forbid we are not going to let you do surgery in any way, shape, form to our kids. And it goes on so many different layers, and the minutia is incredible. If you have two parents that are getting divorced, and one parent gets the majority custody, and that parent is not going to be able to go make insane decisions on a confused child that will do permanent damage. So that's the house end of it. I was very proud to be a co-sponsor with Christina Rogner, who is the senator from Hudson, and we did a bill that basically will prevent males from competing against our daughters in female sports. My daughters played soccer for Kirkland Catholic High School in Youngstown, Ohio, and I am not going to let a male compete against her. These poor girls worked their whole life 
to be the best that they can be at all these different levels of girls' sports in Ohio. And we're not going to let a male go in there and destroy their dreams, Bob. No, they, you, you shouldn't, and I'm so glad you brought that part of this up, too. We, uh, we, we do focus an awful lot, or I do. I focus an awful lot on the, uh, you know, saving adolescents from experimentation and the transing and the puberty blockers and so forth. But, yes, that Save Women's Sports Act is extraordinarily important, and I'm so glad that it was folded in together here because these are companions. Uh, so I'm glad you got you and uh, Senator Rogner uh, wrote that and sponsored that. We're talking to uh, State Senator Michael Woolley. Um, Tell me about the override on your side now. Um, first of all, was there any talk at all? Are you aware of it, it uh, of coming back early to, to override this the way the uh, House side did? Well, yeah, we've actually had two different phone conferences with the whole caucus trying to figure out if we could have a special session scheduled before the 24th. It's still not completely off the table. Uh, worst case scenario is the 24th. I think I have some pretty good news. So in the Ohio Senate, there are 33 senators. I am of the 33rd district, the last district on the east coast of Ohio. Mm -hmm. There are 26 Republicans and the rest of the Democrats. We thought we had 24 of the Republicans. I think we are now at 26 of 26. We need 21 for the veto override. We have five more than we need for the veto override. There is nothing on earth that is going to stop the Ohio Senate from overriding this veto. Uh, I know even John Schuster is disappointed. I, you know, I don't know what the governor was thinking. I mean, he would have to answer that. Uh, we were highly disappointed. Maybe he had uh, reconsideration from the scandal that we saw happening in the hospitals in Cincinnati that the governor felt that he could do an executive order. But I, I, with all due respect to the governor, a little too little, a little too late. A full override will happen as God is my witness. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I, I may have misunderstood you. You said that John Husted is disappointed? I, I, Governor DeWine. Oh, okay. I, 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 th- I thought I heard you say Husted before that because um, he did come out and, and break from DeWine on this and said he said, of course, uh, boys should not be participating in girls' sports, so he's yeah. on the right side and of he's that. He's actually called some of us to make sure that the veto is intact. So I think there is a divide in the executive branch, but they would have to speak for themselves. Got it. Got it. Perfect. No, thank you for that. So, um, so you said there's going to be 26 out of 26, and that's a great thing. But but you you had a you just had the conference calls, right? Uh, but but there was no discussion about coming back early. It's just, it's going to happen yes, on the 25th. Yes, is that no, the... there definitely was, and we were throwing around dates. I think the problem was that there were some members that are actually out of the country. So I think we want to have we want to show force. I mean, because we don't take overrides lightly, especially when. You know, we're lucky enough that all three branches of Ohio are, are in the Republican hands. So and we do have a supermajority. And you hear it a lot of times on people on the street. If you have a supermajority, act like it. And, and it's message loud and clear. We are acting like it. And we are definitely uh, going to take the steps. Now, I know a couple of the uh, members were trying to get back into the country for this vote. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, you know, just check out all our social medias. Uh, you know, uh, Michael Rooley, uh, Twitter at Ohio Senate, and uh, we will keep you posted because if we could do that, it would be incredible, especially towards the end of next week. 
Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to follow you right now so that I can get that information. So thank you for that. Am I right, by the way, procedurally, it's 90 days, right? After the override, it's then it, then the 90-day clock starts? That's exactly right. Okay, yeah, and, then for, and that's frustrating, too, because of uh, you know the possi- possibility of kids over the course of 90 days being put on these puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones, and then they kind of get grandfathered into this whole thing once it's been started, <clears throat> and then they can move their way to the uh, to the procedures. And I wanted to address that, too, Senator Rooley. Um, you, you're correct when you said, you know, maybe this should be called child protective because when you're 18, you can make up your own mind about what you want to do. That That's a little bit misleading, too. <clears throat> when Governor DeWine uh, announced his executive order saying no more trans surgeries for children, you know, he, he, he wanted us to think, though, well, that settles it. There's no need for an override because that's what we were hoping for anyway. And it's just not true. An 18-year-old, first of all, is completely, even though legally we recognize them as adults, they're completely... Um, in almost every circumstance, um, they're not they're not fully formed in terms of their brain function. I think uh, science says it's twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven. So they're still young and preformative, but we call them adults. But when they're eighteen, if they can immediately go lay down on a table and have all of these procedures done because of what was done to them while they were seventeen, sixteen, fifteen, fourteen, and so forth, with the puberty blockers and everything else getting started, I, I still wonder if we're not. Uh, allowing kids to have these procedures performed because I think an 18 year old who has been groomed that way from you know age nine or ten on up, even when they're 18, they're still a kid. Well, there's a key word, groom. So that's I let's let's talk about that for one second. All right. So when you think about life, now you know I'm in my early 50s. So when I was younger, we had such a thing called a tom a tomboy, and that would be a girl that maybe would wear overalls and come and play football. And guess what? A lot of times she grew up to be this beautiful woman and lived a perfectly normal life. Doesn't mean that she didn't necessarily wanted to change her sex. Or maybe you had a boy that was 8, 9, or 10, and he's hanging out with the neighborhood kids, and some girl puts a dress on him. That doesn't mean that the kid wants to transition into something else. It means that they're kids being kids playing dress-up. That's all that means. And most of the time within life, you'll figure out what you are if you let someone happen naturally and organically the way that God intended. And, 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 and as you reach into adulthood, you can figure out what you are without an adult trying to groom you into being something or, or doing a procedure that could actually bring you to suicide. When you look at suicide as in the general population of America, I'm not positive. I think it's like... 0.06% of the general population actually commits suicide. But in transgender, especially when surgeries are involved, it goes up between 29 to 34%. That means almost one in four kids that grow up to do this surgery actually kill themselves. So there is a mental aspect of this, Bob, that I don't think the public is really aware of. The, I, there, there are so many damages that we can do to these kids that we can never take back. I mean, this is child endangerment. I have um, shared some of the similar statistics that you just cited. Can you tell me where you got yours, or can you send them over to us? Because you're oh, right. Oh, yeah, we'll email you. I'll yeah. email you. We have a whole, a whole caucus has that goes through all the details. 
Yeah, because you're right. Most Ohioans don't know that. They are told, because the the agenda is being advanced by the left-wing media that says gender-affirming care is the right way to go, and if you deny a child gender-affirming care, they're going to be suicidal. And parents are told all the time, would you rather have a living daughter or a dead son, and and, and this sort of thing. And it's just simply not true. It's when they've gone through with this irreversible procedure that they, they, they regret when they're in their 20s, when they realize what a terrible thing they've done, and they they are angry at the uh, the adults in their lives that failed them by allowing them to do this <clears throat> and to proceed on the course that they were. That's when they take their lives, when they realize what they have done is irreversible and they can never get themselves back again. Uh, it's so it, It's so important. I've tried to give as many stats as I can find on those. If you've got more stats, by all means, share them with me so I can get that out there to the masses in uh, the best way that I can. People need to know the truth about this. You um, are spot on. And, and, and these are the same people. These are the same people that are teaching these kids that are 19 to 28 years old that Israel got what they deserve. They, they, they don't, you, do you understand? That is the support of the East. We are the West. We are Western culture. It is England. It is us. We, we, are, we are the path of normalcy. The East, which they are supporting, when you say that Israel or you want to, you want to groom your kids, they are basically destroying Western culture. And, and you, do you know what that is? That is Sharia law. And so these people that think they're so messed up in their head where they think it's so, they think it's culturally cool to have the trans and to do all these different things that they do. And in reality, it's very scary because if you embrace that mentality from Yemen, from Qatar, from Iran, from Afghanistan, from Lebanon, these people believe in Sharia law. You do, want, do you know what they do to gay people in Sharia law, Bob? Sure do. They throw them off of roofs. They execute them. That's right. Yeah. So no, it, it's anyone bizarre. that's listening that thinks, if you think Bob and I are far right wingers, you're wrong. We actually want to protect you. We want, we want to protect all people because we're God's people. And we love everybody. But we are not a Sharia law, Eastern philosophy, where we think it's cool to destroy our culture to change America to the point where we want to have kids killing themselves and being confused. You know, we had Riley Gaines come and testify in Christina's uh, committee. And if you want to talk about a rock star, you should listen to her testimony on Ohio.gov. And she'll tell you how when she was a little girl and she was competing in swimming and she thought it was going to be the highlight of her life and they just took her dreams away. This is, this is the opposition killing our culture one step at a time. Yeah, I've interviewed Riley on a number of occasions. She is every bit the rock star, and she is a true leader in this in this field. So, Senator Ruley, I want to I want to change subjects on you very briefly here to ask you about the the legal component here. We're celebrating the override of um, of of uh, the veto, and we get the Safe Act passed. We're going to override it on the Senate side, as you just pointed out. We're going to get it done. Then it's going to come directly into a head-on collision with the new constitutional amendment that was passed on November 7th, um, which, of course, we know was written for abortion, but much, much more than that, with the vague language saying that individuals, all individuals, can make their own reproductive decisions. That can translate into minors making decisions to sterilize themselves with puberty blockers. Constitutional amendment. You could, I can do this. You can't stop me. Well, here's the safe fact that says you can't. What's going to happen when those two things collide? Well, 
if we remember from the last election cycle and when people come on your radio show and they talk about why it's so important that we elect Supreme Court justices in the state of Ohio that believe like you believe, if there's any, actually electing a Supreme Court justice is more important than a state rep, a state senator, or even a governor, because like you said, this is going to end up smack dab in the Supreme Court. So hopefully our Supreme Court does right by us and does the right thing and sees which one of these will override each other. Now, it is going to be rough, but if I'm not mistaken from legal counsel in the Ohio Senate, they said that some of the language in issue one was gray enough that this might override that. Well, yeah, and and that's the funny part about it is is they left it gray so that it can be expanded beyond the horrific any time for any reason at any point in gestation abortion part of this to this uh, transitioning thing and this surgical mutilation thing. They left that language vague intentionally, and maybe if it's vague enough, like you just said, that it can't be counted upon, and maybe the courts will do that. Um, they're going to have right. to they're going to have to demand, I think, some definitions. You know that the word individual is going to have to be defined, and that the word words reproductive health are going to have to be defined, those kinds of things, maybe, maybe that's what gives us um, uh, the fighting chance here to, to have the safe act rule of the day. I want to put a little footnote in. When you listen to their argument, when, they're, when your listeners are listening to uh, someone argue with them and saying that they're wrong or we're monsters, there's a lot of work that's done in these bills. They go through committee. They go through, I mean, this hearing in particular, I think Christina and her committee was 68. I think we were about nine and a half hours of testimony several hundred testimonies. So everyone in Ohio has a voice, and they're able to speak on this voice. But what happens in those testimonies is we get really deep in the weeds and we look at all the possibilities of things that were missing. So if you hear someone say, well, hey, you know, some human beings are born with both sexes. That is true. It's a very small, small, small percentage of the population. And in 68, there are two or three medical exceptions for somebody that needs this to stay alive, to, to help them exist, because they were born with both sexes. But it's very, very small. But the opposition will use that as a battering ram, saying that we were monsters. Well, we're really not. We went through all the details, and everyone is taken care of. We're just not going to let child abuse happen. Yeah. Well, and people who are born with the intersex condition that you are talking about are indeed born with birth defect. It's 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 no different than somebody who is born with six fingers on one hand. It happens. Some some children are born without hands or are missing an arm. Weird birth defects happen, but they do not define the nature of what it means to be a male or a female. You are either of a nature to produce sperm and thus impregnate or to produce eggs and become impregnated. That is it. If there is a if there is a birth defect that is associated with that it does not change the general normal and natural biological cycle of things and and we're that not going to let we're not going to let them win uh, with that ridiculous argument yeah senator absolutely um, correct senator um uh, michael Worley, uh, district 33 thank you uh continue to lead uh on the senate side uh let us know when we're going to be sure first of all let us know about those stats so i can share those with other people but let us know when uh, the override vote is going to be held if you could please and uh we'll have you back on and we'll celebrate when that happens as well as we continue to move forward in our goal to protect kids i really appreciate your time thank you sir appreciate yours it's uh, news whkradio.com giving you reason in the age of unreason always right radio with bob france and the answer all right it's eleven thirty six. 
didn't get here today, but super briefly, kind of tying in with the um, passage of the SAFE Act, uh, this also broke yesterday, actually on Tuesday. The bathroom bill, Ohio's bathroom bill, House Bill 183, it's in the State House and it's being changed this week. The bill, sponsored by Adam Byrd, Republican from New Richmond, and Beth Lear, Republican from Galena, would require all K-12 public schools, chartered non-public schools, and institutions of higher education to designate specified restrooms for students of male or female biological sex. In other words, boys with boys, girls with girls. Uh, I think Ohioans really believe in this bill. They want this bill, Bird said. Representative Joe Miller, a Democrat from Lorraine, ranking member of the House of Higher Education Committee, said, No, he doesn't like it at all. It's discriminatory in nature. The goal is to not make is not to make bathrooms safer for everyone. Yes, it is. Boys in girls' bathrooms is not safe. Boys in boys' bathrooms are safe. Simple, direct. He said, uh, did uh, Bird actually? <clears throat> That the sub-bill is being introduced on Wednesday with four main differences. It changes the definition of biological sex to align with other bills in the state house. Right now, HB 183 um, defines it as the condition of being either male or female and the sex listed on the person's official birth record, which is exactly how it ought to be. The new version will define it the same way it's written in House Bill 68, which, of course, is the SAFE Act that just passed, the biological indication of male and female, including sex chromosomes, naturally occurring. Now, this gets into a lot of the science of it. I don't know if it needs to be changed to that, but they both look fine to me. In other words, it can't just be how you feel or wherever you identify as. The bill also adds exemptions for custodians. or someone responding to an emergency to enter a bathroom that does not align with their biological sex. It prohibits new construction or the construction or maintenance of any all-gendered restrooms at these schools that does not include single-use family restrooms, which are fine. The university or the K-12 school would have to change its labeling, change its use, so they can easily do that, uh, and on and on down the line. So bottom line is it's good. It's good. This this is a bill. The change to the bathroom bill uh, strengthens the belief that there are only boys who belong in boys' spaces. There are only girls who belong in girls' spaces. And uh, that will be the case in all Ohio schools, including and up through higher education. So that means no boys at Ohio State University can go into girls' restrooms and saying, Hi, I'm a girl, and go in there and do whatever it is they're intending to do. Dan is in uh, Middleburg Heights. Hello, Dan. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, Bob. Uh, yeah, this is really good news and uh, kind of encouraged, you know, with uh, what you've been talking about, you know, like with the last senator, you know, and then the House. Yes. You know, uh, you know, actually overriding DeWine, you know. Yes. But we, I, I believe the, the worst thing in Ohio that we have, though, and it's guys like you that I think going forward somehow need to get this out of ballot somehow. We went through this in August and we went through it in November you were discussing with the gentleman from Youngstown, you still got up against this amendment in Ohio. Yes. And I've told you a couple of times, I wish I had everybody voting for it. There are guys like you, but we don't. You can't have people getting a petition to put it on a general ballot and then ask only a handful of people in Ohio to change the amendment of the Constitution in Ohio. You need to have the senators and the House only getting into those weeds that this guy was talking about. 
to make that decision for everybody else. And then if they come up with a bad decision, then you get rid of them. But you can't have people off the street voting to amend the Ohio Constitution. It should be like the federal government where it takes the state legislatures to change the amendment. Yeah, and, uh, I, I mean, I said that back in August of last year when we had that, yes. uh, you know, yeah. to strengthen the, the Constitution. Uh, I, I agree. If you are yeah. going to let the people do it, then you need to have it at least with the strong, robust numbers like you do, like you're talking about with the federal Constitution. And it should yes. be two thirds. It should be sixty-six percent. Yeah, you know, right, right, you know. right, right, right. And I, I know you understand that, but if I had everybody like you voting or me, you know, we'd be okay. But that's not how these people work. They're going to fudge the system by putting in bad language on the ballot. And that's where we stand every time they do it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, you're, you're not wrong about that. You're not wrong I'm just about it. I mean, you and I, solution. That's all yeah, I know, I know, I know. And, and I want to strengthen the amendment process too. And I hate the idea that this CFAC could be up, up, upended in a, in a court by, by the constitutional amendment of the past. And I agree with you that the people shouldn't be able to do it with a simple majority. Like I said, I fought for the, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the expanded, the expanded sixty uh, percent. Again, that wasn't enough. I even said that at the time. But at the bare yeah, minimum, I know you did. six Only out of ten like ought to be able to do voice, this. Though, you know, I don't, yeah. you know, you know, and no, I get it. I get it. I, I, I do. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't I don't want the people to ever not have any recourse uh, to change the laws by which they are governed. I want also, them to be able to use the re- representative republic. We haven't changed the representatives. And if the representatives aren't uh, doing it, I, I don't have a problem with having a process to let them go directly with a ballot initiative to the Constitution. But doggone it, it better be strong and overwhelming and not just a simple majority, because that's not absolutely. how our, our, our and you government can't go is to a, You can't rely on, a, on a, the, the Supreme Court, because I'm still paying property taxes that were determined back in 1999 <laughs> were unconstitutional, and that hasn't been changed. Yeah. But in this, but at this moment in time, thank you for the call, Dan. In okay. this moment in time, though, we do have to rely on the Supreme Court because this is going to come to a head. Uh, there will be clashes. It'll go all the way up to the Ohio Supreme Court, and he's right. The votes for the Supreme Court justices are maybe more important than the votes for our executives or our legislators. People don't understand that one third of our three tiered system of government um, is is so extraordinarily crucial. When the other ones clash, they're the ones who make the call, uh, and that's why so that's why it was so important to get O'Connor out of there. Uh, anyway, uh, Lisa, our good friend in Medina County. Hi, we were just talking to one of your colleagues there, uh, Mark Williams, today. Lisa, how are you? Yes, I heard. That's awesome. That's awesome. I am well, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Hey, we've uh, got Max Miller coming tomorrow to speak at McBann. It'll be our first meeting of the year, and I met with Max on the 2nd of January, and he really has a lot to convey. I mean, there's just so much that uh, a lot of misinformation out there. A lot of people uh, have heard headlines but not really dug into the meat of things. And he is ready and willing to take questions and uh, make clear what, what's going on, at least on his side, uh, in Congress. Well, that's good. That's that, that's good news, and that's a good way to start um, uh, the the new year, uh, Ed McFan, with a sitting United States uh, congressman. So that that's really good, and hopefully there will be a lot. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.